1: Welcome back as we head into Hour 2. He is uh, one of my favorite and one of the best political consultants and analysts in the country. We're delighted that he lives here in Phoenix. Uh, His name is George Kalaf, K-H-A-L-A-F, and he is managing partner at the Resolute Group and president of Data Orbital. Week thick with politics. Wanted to get some of George's thoughts on uh, air about all of them. George, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us.
2: Always good to be on with you, Seth
1: you betcha thank you um i i mean i guess we'll just start with the hard stuff first and see if we can muddle through it together um there are october surprises and there are october surprises this one didn't happen in an election year but it may uh it may affect elections um first of all you know it would be a conceit not to point out that you're very familiar with this region in fact you just most recently came back uh from lebanon um Any initial thoughts you had, political or non-political, from what you uh, woke up to and thought about uh, Saturday carrying you through the week as someone who knows that region very well?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, just, uh, I mean, obviously it goes without saying, absolutely, uh, absolutely horrific events, uh, what's happening. There's just, there's just so many, um, you know, so many stories and reports that are coming out that are being, excuse me, that are being corroborated, that are coming from that region, in terms of the way that Hamas infiltrated homes and towns and just absolutely and indiscriminately killed uh, innocent civilians, uh, just one by one, uh, indiscriminate of age, of, of gender, of, of, of any reason, paragliding into music festivals. And it was just um, it was just absolutely, you know, senseless is not even an appropriate word. Horrific may not even be an appropriate word. And obviously a lot has happened since then. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, what's going on and the response from Israel into that and the most recent announcement of uh, Israel asking uh, the United Nations to evacuate civilians from a chunk of Gaza. Obviously, as you noted, being from Lebanon, then I turned to the north, as folks know, Gaza's in the south uh, of, of that region. Then I turned to the north and there's uh, been multiple altercations now between Hezbollah and Israel and rockets going back and forth so far, not escalating. Uh, to the point of, of open war, or to the to the point of what transpired during the July 2006 war, where uh, there was a full engagement between both sides for an entire month, month and a half. I happened to be in Lebanon at that uh, at that time as well. But uh, there's a lot of anxiety that this could turn into from already a, a one-front war to a two-front war uh, that would make it that much more perilous for the entire region than dragging in additional neighbors. Uh, like iran and others so this it's a very again tense as an understatement it's a very tense uh it's a very tense time uh it adds candidly seth to the to the just ever increasing and intense divide that we have in this nation we've seen the responses from from people in terms of the way that candidly folks defended hamas again not defending palestinians or palestinian civilians and not talking about anything actually defending hamas and, and using like Black Lives Matter did in Chicago using the the the, the character of a paraglider. Again, we know what they were getting at when they used that. The paragliders were the ones that went into that music festival and killed individuals. Uh, and so, th- there's a lot that's going to come out of this that that even is going to affect our uh, our national politics. Obviously, is going to affect the region. And this is again, I can't, can't underscore this enough. This is the first time since 1973. Obviously, we know there's always things that occur, right? People in America think, oh, there's always things that occur in that region. You're right. This is the first time, though, that Israel's declared war in 50 years. And so this is not an insignificant event um, just in terms of what, what what's going to even occur long term.
1: George, I tend to think of um, – thank you for that. I tend to think of things uh, fairly uh, in, in, in polarities, and I tend to think of the world – Uh, if not country and various movements and efforts as forces of composition and forces of decomposition and uh, as someone whose family is from Lebanon as uh, a Lebanese American yourself and who no doubt has uh, lots and lots and lots of stories of history of of your culture and your country uh, uh, of birth it's instructive to know that a once beautiful, pluralistic, honored, honorable society can be destroyed by unbridled acts of terrorism and forces of decomposition. And Lebanon is a case in point, is it not? Should be a lesson to the world of what can happen to one of the great countries and great models of civilization— as happened to Lebanon in 1975-1976, yes? Or is that overstating the case?
2: 100%. From, from the inception of when Lebanon became an actual nation in the 40s, uh, after it uh, it sort of removed itself from being under French rule to the point of the mid-70s, right? 1975, the start of the Lebanese Civil War. Lebanon was a uh, uh, a jewel of the Middle East, uh, was pluralistic, but was, uh, was majority... Ah, uh, Christian was democratic. All of the things that you, uh, you know, that that that, uh, that you kind of want to see, candidly, in a in a country. And then from 75 to 1994, 19 years was the complete and utter dismantling. And uh, arguably, since 94 to today, it's gotten even worse. If if you can imagine me uh, saying that, or believe me saying that, uh, because we went from a period of war that saw individuals like my parents, the reason why we immigrated to the United States of America and immigrated to the land of opportunity. Is because of what happened in the Libyan Civil War and the outcome, which is uh, which is the fact that we, uh, you know, uh, we, those that were fighting for uh, Western values and those that were fighting to, to protect our heritage lost.
1: And we were under Co- occupation. Composition lost to decomposition yes. is yes. what we're seeing. Yeah, 100%.
2: Right. And then now over the course of the last uh 29 years, it's gotten even worse, and now to the point where Lebanon is, again, going to get dragged into something. Hopefully not, but could get dragged into something because there's a, once again, a, a, a militia within a state that decides to operate in the way that they that they want to operate. So this is not an unreal, I guess, you know, and I know where you're getting at with that comment. I'll sort of boil it down this way. It is not, it is not unreal to believe that a country can fall apart, a That's country that was point. once yes. the Paris of the Middle East, right. that was once a financial hub for the region, that had a growing economy, and that was easily a rising nation, uh, it could be brought down to its knees and then some. Yeah. Uh, that can happen to a nation. And then all of its people, a lot of the I mean, there's 12 million Lebanese out of Lebanon and three and a half, four million Lebanese in Lebanon, just to wrap your arms around
1: that. Do that again. Do those numbers again, George.
2: 12 million, at least, Lebanese expats that live not in Lebanon, and 4 million that live in Lebanon. So you can imagine four times as many people, three to four times as many people live out of the country than in the country, right? That's imagining in the United States of America that 1.2 billion Americans live somewhere else, and the 350 or 380 or so that live here, a million live in the United States. I mean, very few other nations have anything even close to that, but that's what happens when your country
1: falls apart. He may have overstated it, but not by much and not by too many countries, maybe two or three if if that. But it was a long-time uh, phrase, uh, used, a long-used phrase, an oft-used phrase by Ronald Reagan uh, throughout his political career. That uh, countries uh, throughout history who have known freedom and then lost it have rarely known it again. He said never. I think rare might be uh, just given the modern history of the world might be the better word. But only by a handful. Uh, Lebanon itself has had to struggle with this. I mean, once once the invading uh, terrorism has taken hold, the, it destroyed the Paris of the Middle East. It destroyed the jewel of the Middle East. There was a moment of repair, as you point out. But again, um, it got on its knees. It didn't get on its feet. And we're back maybe on our feet, huh?
2: Yeah, yeah, 100 percent, 100 percent. It has been a continual regression, now economically, politically, uh, Mentality-wise, I mean, you understand that you know, living on again, it's not often reported on as much as it is of, of larger countries. Unemployment rates in the 40s and 50s for those under 30, 35. I mean, imagine that lack of opportunity. Imagine if any region of America comes nowhere close to that level of uh, of despair. So imagine what it does to an entire grouping of people if we think, and this is why I like to remind our friends Seth uh, anytime I give a talk. Imagine the hopelessness that we may feel, and imagine the hopelessness that those yeah. in other parts of the world fear, uh, feel that genuinely genuinely have no path yep. they, they, they not only have an obstructed path, they see no path forward uh, that is demoralizing on any human being
1: we're going to take a break, George, uh, but when we come back, really, maybe the biggest question um, that someone in your position can have to be a- has to be asked and, and has to wrestle with, <clears throat> and it didn 't quite come to me uh, as much as I 've talked about versions of it into sharp relief until uh, until today when uh, Fox News was interviewing a, a 19-year-old woman in Manhattan uh, who was marching uh, on behalf of Hamas and Palestine and uh, was saying to the reporter, these atrocities didn't happen. The things you are telling us uh, have to be put uh, in some context, first and foremost, that these are myths and lies. This is an American woman with no accent, 19 years old, And the reason I raise it with you, George, is because as a political consultant, uh, when we enter the world of politics, debate, argument, trying to convince people, how the hell do you break through to people with such invincible ignorance that believe what they want to believe, regardless of whether it's on the side of the worst forms of atrocities possible or not? But it represents this absolute unwillingness to see things that are as clear as day. How do you penetrate that as a political consultant when you're talking on things much less, much less obvious and much less, much, less, um, much less bold? I mean, tax policy, foreign policy, domestic policy. How do you do it? George will tell us when we come back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. George Kaloff is our guest, political consultant from the Resolute Group, where he is managing partner. Simon and Garfunkel have an old song, George the Boxer, and there's a line in there, a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. He's talking about this uh, pure blind, purblind uh, young girl, 19-year-old, who was being interviewed by Fox earlier today as she was marching uh, with the Palestinian flag. And she was asked about the atrocities and what she had to say about them. And she was saying that they don't exist, um, that these are uh, myths that have been perpetrated and thus uh, we are operating out of context when we talk about them. And I was thinking about that in the context of what you do on a daily basis in politics when you try and convince people of a perspective or a point of view or a point of public policy or on behalf of a candidate. Over things that are even much less, so much, more, so much more clear, so much less obviously stark in front of our very eyes, how do you deal with people who just are unwilling to see reality? How do you do it as a political consultant? How do you break through to those that, I don't know if they are ignorant, I don't know if they want to be ignorant, I don't know if they choose to live in lies, or if they actually believe these lies. How do you do it as a consultant?
2: off let's i think we should spend a little bit of time kind of defining i think there's a couple of categories of people that that you know i think we can talk about right there's a type of people because you're asking the question are they ignorant or are they just blind yeah. i think i think some are ignorant some are not okay. i think there's a, there's a grouping of people that genuinely um kind of tend to believe what they're told and uh, we know how propaganda works if you tell a lie enough times it becomes the truth mm-hmm. and in a world right where truth is relative it makes it even easier to do so right i mean when these when these things happen and the human nature was this way it was in a time when actually we almost all believed in one eternal truth now we believe in a million different truths right. or that truth could be in any shape in any way and so there are a grouping of people like that then there's another grouping of people Seth, that i genuinely believe intentionally know the truth and and intentionally then spout lies and that they believe something completely different and those are the people that then want to convince the first group of people that I mentioned. So there's a class of people that know exactly what they're doing and what they're saying. Yeah. They're the ones that are formulating the propaganda. And we see it across the board. We see it all the time in terms of even something like, you know, to bring it home even in Arizona and the conversations around the empowerment scholarship accounts and the budgeting and stuff. There's right. people that literally are making things up. They, they're making screenshots. They're either fabricating, they're taking something out of context because they want to take their perspective and they want to be able to convince additional people that their perspective is truth when they know that it's not. Uh, when it's not truth, and then there's, like I said, I think a class of people, politically, I probably would then lump this individual into it. The score that you were mentioning—that look, they, whether they're smart, they're not smart. It's not a commentary about intelligence. They have a worldview and an ideology that says that again, whether we're talking about this issue here at hand in the Middle East, whether we're talking about abortion, whatever it is that we're talking about, um, what they believe is that all of these things are deconstructed, and whatever the. the the reason is to be enraged today is the reason we to be enraged today without almost any questions or any sort of depth beyond that. So then to the comment about, okay, well, what do you do about this? Unfortunately, I think there's a grouping of people that I'm not sure how we're going to be able to reach them other than continuing to shout the truth in the most articulate way possible, and frankly, continuing to stand by those that are willing to articulate and shout the truth in the face of opposition, and not even just opposition, in the face of a of a canceling. And I know we say canceling, it almost has become desensitized, but legitimately, people are being uh, canceled and run out of their homes and whatnot for being able to speak the truth. And we need to stand with them and stand by them and support them in the way that we would want them to support us. Because the only way that we're going to combat lies in the long term, whether you're a consultant or whether you're an average individual in Arizona or anywhere in the country, is to speak the truth. In the face of the lie, not in in truth when it's easy, but speaking truth in the face of the lie. That is the true measure of the way that our society is going to head in the direction of of despair or, or in the direction of hope in how we conduct ourselves in that regard over the next decade or two.
1: As someone who's been in politics a long time and who's, you know, like me, read about it and observed it probably since I don't know, you prob you probably started it around when I did, maybe age five or six. I, I, I just have a sense we're we're made of the same kind of stuff. We've probably been watching politics since about five or six. Mm-hmm. Um, George, do you think more people live in the lie now than they used to? It seems to me that they do. It seems to me this is part of the division in this country that people point to. They point to something different in this country. The political divide is part of it. It does seem to me that more people choose to live in lies now than ever before, and you used the word truth earlier. They want to live in something called my truth more than they want to live in the truth, and some of it is deliberate. Some of it is maybe psychologically more comfortable. Some of it is maybe because, as you say and run through these categories, maybe the truth is too hard to hear, but some of it is just because it comes from such an ideological direction, they want to stamp it out and the truth out and just can't tolerate it. Anyway, it seems there's more of that now than there ever has been.
2: Yes, yeah, 100%. Look, I, I'm a firm believer that before we were all connected technologically in the way that we were, there were pockets of people that were cut off, right? And, and I don't mean cut off like as in they couldn't get to a big city or they couldn't get out of a jungle if you're somewhere, you know, some other part of the world. But I'm talking like, like, look, people grew up with certain beliefs. This is why people have accents. This is why people that sort of were certain religions were clustered together, so on and so forth. But in general... Um, those belief systems were sort of perpetuated not in real time; like they were generational. They couldn't move quick enough, right? Because information never flowed that quickly. Right. Think about it. Right. In today's day and age, you could have over the course of months or years an entire realignment, which we've seen in this nation almost multiple times now. In the way that COVID panned out, in the way that our political scene has panned out, you see complete realignments because we are being inundated with information on a daily basis that affirms the beliefs that we had. So imagine if you were a, "quote unquote." ignorant okay and and in the 50s you were ignorant only in so far as you heard news when you met someone at the grocery store you saw someone at church or you saw someone at you know at the park or wherever it is or each place of work now you are in real time 24 7 being flooded with information from all across the world and so you now have an ability to exclusively gravitate towards people that are going to affirm what you believe and perpetuate it and, and Fana, why are we seeing clusters of, of certain types of protests happening on college campuses versus other places? And yeah. why do we, right? Like, why are we seeing the phenomenon that people, there's geographic clustering of things and there's sort of age clustering of things because these individuals in these areas or these individuals in these certain ages, we're all, they're flocking to hear information that affirms something that they already kind of somewhere maybe believed in as opposed to being tested because we don't like to talk about uncomfortable things oftentimes. As human beings but especially i think sometimes as americans which we should be willing to talk about uncomfortable things um and especially things that are difficult and so we just put our blinders on it's a it's a it's really a big phenomenon and it absolutely Seth to your point has has aided as to why we have so dramatically in the last six to eight years come farther and farther apart quicker than you know we felt we have in a long time because of the speed in which this information is just moving on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, we used to say, and obviously uh, one very important book says the truth will set you free, Uh, but it turns out that people can now, with the availability of technology uh, so pervasive, they can find whatever they want to substantiate the preferred truth for themselves rather than the truth that we all used to have to live with because we had no choice we all could see the sun and call it the sun. We all could see the moon and call it the moon. And today, if you want to believe the sun is the moon, boy, there's going to be Internet sites and news sources that will help you do that. George, do you have to run or do you have time to stay? Either way is fine by me. I, I can keep you if you've got more time.
2: Yeah, yeah, we can stay and try a bit more. Let's Great. do it.
1: George Kaloff is my guest, the Resolute Group, Data Orbital. We'll be right back. Haven't heard that one in a while, my sweet Lord, right? Welcome back to The Seth Leibson Show. George Kaloff is my guest. He's been generous with his time. George, uh, domestically, um, we haven't even talked what's been really maybe the biggest story with the Republican and Democratic Party here outside of world events. But it also shows you kind of maybe an irresponsibility and an ignorance about world events. Uh, A group of um, a pooch in the Republican Party shut down the one Republican part of government in the federal government last week, perhaps without consideration that, you know, they're not the only news in town, and now here we sit in the midst of an international crisis of proportions we haven't seen in at least 50 years, and we don't have Republican leadership in Washington. We don't have a Speaker of the House. Um, I don't know when we will, and I throw that as a series of open questions to you to address any which way you would like.
2: Yeah, yeah, look, we... Uh, we don't have a speaker, as you mentioned. We have a we have a, a essentially a, a temporary speaker in Congressman Patrick Henry, which really has very little authority other than to, than to elect the new speaker. Then the majority leader Steve Scalise, who's a congressman from Louisiana, put his name forward. Again, not to get into too much you know nuance, but he won the vote, uh, which traditionally, if you win the vote amongst the majority party, so in this scenario, would be the vote amongst the Republican conference, so the grouping of all the Republican congressmen. Uh, traditionally those that that lose fall in line, he gets elected speaker. He ended up withdrawing his name uh, after a couple of days because he started apparently losing support even after that conference vote. So his name, not only, if you folks remember that uh, former Speaker Kevin McCarthy's name was I think had to be put forward, what, 15, 16 rounds? Yeah, I think there were 15 rounds,
1: yeah. I think so. Uh,
2: He didn't even make it one round. He he withdrew his name. Uh, Then uh, Jim Jordan, his opponent, Congressman from Ohio, uh, folks know and heard his name for a while, conservative stalwart. Uh, former founder of the House Freedom Caucus, uh, now has become the consensus candidate, which, by the way, is amazing in and of itself in terms of uh, who, who you know, Jim Jordan was and the way that he kind of carried himself right who he is today. Yeah. Anyone knows when you get to positions of power and leadership, they're, they're, you have to find a way, especially in a deliberative body like that. We've got hundreds of members you have to manage and, and watch over. You have to conduct yourself you know, differently, but he is, at least right now, the consensus candidate. But then there's individuals starting to say, no, I don't want to. I will refuse to vote for him. Individuals that are Republicans, because we know the Democrats are going to vote for uh, the, their their, major, uh, their minority leader, Hakeem Jeffries, congressman from New York. So we're sort of where we started months ago, Seth, where we didn't know who's going to be. We don't know who's going to be the speaker. Mm-hmm. Now they're trying to come up with some additional names. I think the thing that's going to be interesting is, can they find an individual who's going to be able to triangulate – every faction of the party and keep everyone happy that's a very very tall order yep. in a razor thin by the way majority we have a five or six seat majority because there's a couple of individuals that have had to uh have had to leave office so the uh you know as a prognosticator the <laughs> uh, it, it does not look good uh, in our chances of um electing a speaker Soon, at least, unless there's a major breakthrough. Are,
1: are, are there serious factions uh, within the Republican Party that are the cause for this? Or is it, do you think, more personality over principle? I,
2: it's hard to tell. I think some of it is personality. A lot of these folks have known each other for a while. So there's some people that don't like that person and so on and so forth. I think there are levels of, I mean, there are matters of principle. Don't get me wrong. I just don't know that the principles are more dominant than the personality features. Because then the problem is, like, there's some folks that are now the quote unquote more of the moderates that say, yeah, I don't want to vote for Jim Jordan. And then it was more of the conservatives that said they didn't want to vote for Kevin McCarthy or Steve Scalise, right? So you get some of those, you know, some of those dynamics. But a lot of it is personality. I mean, look, when you're part of a deliberative body, unlike being an executive, you. You know, it's, it's somewhat of a, I don't, I don't hate to say it like this because, you know, it makes it sound, um, you know, more juvenile, but somewhat of a popularity contest. Mm-hmm. So if you have not done a good job throughout your career of winning, you know, making friends and, and influencing people, winning friends and influencing people, you're going to have a problem if then you want to run for speaker. I'm not necessarily a specific commenter or any one person, but in general, everyone has people that doesn't necessarily love them. And so usually if you've got a larger majority, you get past that. But when you add in small majority. You add in some decently legitimate policy differences, and then you add in the personality differences. I think that's what the combination of all of them is is the reason why we we have gotten to where we have gotten today.
1: Well, George, you've been uh, generous with your time as as always, and I appreciate you being able to check in on the political scene with us. It'll probably change a lot of uh, electioneering and a lot of election analysis, depending on what happens, even over the next several days. So uh, stay close, and uh, we'll work through it with you. Really appreciate you, sir. Always good to be on with you, Seth. All right. God bless you, sir. Stay safe, and uh, best thoughts for your family abroad as well. George Kaloff has been our guest. I'm Seth, and we'll be right back. (laughs) I'll follow your lead, David. (laughs) Whatever you tell me. Tell me, eight or nine. I don't care. Okay, good. Um, Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. You know, David, you have been um, doing yeoman's work all week, especially today. I know you've been running ragged, so thank you for everything. But, you know, it dawns on me with all my discussion, concern, and um, maybe it's an even obsession of sorts with the way our young adults think. You know, I realize I sit across from one every single day of the week. Unfortunately. (laughs) You know, I don't. I don't want to say you're the voice of our generation because I think you're much better than the voice of our generation or that generation, much, much better. But help me understand it. Uh, Help me understand what people in your age category – what are you, millennial or X or Y? What do you consider yourself? I think I'm a millennial. I think I'd be on the the
3: very back end of that.
1: So um, I've been watching a lot of millennials. On TV, I've – watching a lot of Generation Z on television and uh, hearing them and watching them being interviewed. And I've, as you heard the interview with George Kaloff, been consumed with this issue of what they know and what they think they know. I was talking with Sam Stone yesterday. Uh, You may recall I quoted him a teacher from a prominent prep school in Boston who was talking about how someone like um, uh, Jahar Sarneev, one of the Boston Marathon bombers who, you know, fled an awful country and was given a beautiful education, seemingly beautiful education here in America. And at the young age, not too differently aged from yourself, could engage in planting bombs against innocents and engaging in mayhem. And this prep school teacher said the problem with this demographic, these young adults in America today, is that they do not know the basic narratives of their histories or really any narratives. They're blazed on pot searching the internet for any factoids that they believe fit their highly dehistoricized and decontextualized ideologies. And the adult world totally misunderstands them and dismisses them and does so at our collective peril. Factoid is the use perfect Use of that word because it doesn't mean small fact; it means false fact. Uh, David, how, how true is that of your generation? How true is that of young adults? Uh, you you are very distinct and different, and you've made a habit of and 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 really career of studying things in depth. So you're not part of it, but you are of it. Talk to me. Just talk to me. What what is what's going on with your generation and the one below?
3: What's going on? I don't know. I don't understand. Something's happening here. What yeah. it
1: is ain't exactly clear. Yeah,
3: I think there is I, – I, I would agree with the professor who said that uh, young people don't have a good sense of history. I would also a, implore the idea that is um, tritely stated good times bring about uh, mm-hmm. soft men, hard mm-hmm. times bring about uh, good men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I believe mm-hmm. I may be misquoting that. No, but, but it's t- 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 take it on that its own merits. Yeah. That we have uh, grown up in what many people call a post-history world, really the uh, end of the Cold War. It's uh, We are searching for what uh, history will look like in the current sense of it. And because of that, I think that young people have not grown up with the idea of uh, – what is america what is our history that you know we were fought for to be here right now in a sense that you know the good times of the past were brought about by great bloodshed and self sacrifice the penniless eras of the 30s the hard wars of the 40s brought about the good times of the 50s and very early 60s. But what a lot of people will look back on and say is, oh, well, I I just don't have any understanding of history, because I think, uh, particularly among those who grew up in more uh, liberal arts educations, they will look on history and say, well, they were racist back then, or oh, they were sexist back then, or oh, women couldn't vote, and they will just, just drown it out entirely. They will choose not to Uh, Look back or respect upon anything from the past. I I, I have found, at least among some young people, that there is a sense of anything of the past being fallible because um, there were, um, let's say, more obvious sins about society back then. Unfortunately, I think we have a group of young people in America from my generation and future younger generations, younger than I am, who grow up with the very real and very scary sense that they are not – how shall I put this – inherently flawed individuals, that we as humans are flawed individuals and unfortunately there will always be bad aspects of society. But the reason that I can stand up here and fight and wave a flag for my country and America and capitalist ways of doing business and freedom of elections and democracy is because those are the ways that have worked and they work the best for the most amount of people and the most amount of liberty. And I think that people who look uh, at society and look back at the past and say, well, oh, those are all – fallen ideas, and we must uh, start again. Again, it's that idea of, you know, we are post-history, the end of the Cold War. We had no big baddie. We have no sense of uh, community, no sense of nationhood, no sense of uh, all being in it together, if you will. It seems like that's what a lot of people want, and we're not uh, looking to the right areas to find it, is a sense of belonging.
1: A word I'm looking for, sorry, not looking for, thinking about and listening to you, is that are are you indicting a a portion of this community or a large portion of this community because they don't respect the past. And if they don't respect the past for good or ill, I don't mean respect in that sense. I mean respect in understanding that there's something to teach us. That, in other words, just because you're 17, you're not all-knowing, but too many 17-year-olds think they are all-knowing and they don't care about the millennia before them. Millennia.
3: Do you know what has – a recent fact that I've learned that has uh, startled me greatly is that – Many, many young people my age and below believe that they are – and somewhat rightly so, but they believe that they are in the most informed generation right. of their times right. because of – chiefly because of the internet and social media. And because of that, they believe that they are in some sense I, – I suppose they might believe morally superior uh-huh. in the idea that, oh – We are the most connected generation and the most informed because we have the Internet. But as we discussed with the Internet, um, it really allows you to to cherry pick. And um, unfortunately, there are nefarious actors that will use the Internet to promote non-factual information, non-historic information, revisionist history, et cetera, what you will.
1: Yeah, we have to take a commercial break. We might finish up some thoughts on this. There was a – in the 60s, a movement by – By um, the hippie movement, which said, don't trust anyone over 30. (laughs) And it's probably done a tremendous amount of damage because it seems while it was disabused then, it seems to be with us again now. Why don't you and I come back on that on the other side of this break? We'll be right back. Portions of this show brought to you by the great folks at Y-Refi. I was meeting with them today. We're going to have a little uh, special thing from uh, one of their founders at the end of the show in about an hour uh, as a tribute to uh, Lost Lives. A little different from them, uh, but very meaningful. They're very involved in our community at Y-Refi. They also happen to have a great concept in their idea of sponsoring shows like this, and they have a great investment in a portfolio. That's what they do nine to five. Manage a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return, and it's not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve. It's a portfolio where you will know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises. You can turn your monthly income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like, and there's no penalty if you need your money back at any time. No fees in the secure collateralized portfolio from Y-Refi. And it is a due diligence approved firm. As I say, you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return with Y-Refi. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-24. 888-Y-REFI-24. David, it's been great getting your perspective. And um, you were talking about you know the generation that you are so close to, whether it's uh, the beginning, or rather I should say, the tail end of the millennials, or towards the end of Generation Z, um, the word I, I I guess the phrase that comes up is know-it-all, and um, and it's not new. I mean, young people have ha- had and suffered from this a long time. Um, it's just that there, I guess, is as George Kalov was saying earlier more opportunity for them to think that they know it all, because they can find the factoids on their cell phones and on their uh, com- on their computers and PCs to justify the nonsense that they think. But it, it seems to me just a very, very perilous thing. Yeah, I take the point that we've lived in a bubble of decency and good times and high living and... Where, you know, Taylor Swift is the most important thing or who she's dating or whether you got a ticket in the fourth row or the fourteenth row of her concert and all that that represents. I, I get all that. But we've had that before. And um these holidays from history, they don't end well. You know? It's been said that they'll end in fire or ice. We had that holiday up until September tenth, two thousand and one. It ended in fire. I don't know what we're looking at right now. But it doesn't end well when people forget that there's a larger world around them. They have to be cognizant of and that they may not just know it all. That's the essence of liberalism, by the way. The essence of liberalism, as Judge Leonard Hand once said, one of the most important jurists in the history of America, said the importance, the essence of liberalism is the knowledge that you might just not be right. The youth suffer from none of that. And thus they're not liberal. They're illiberal. In fact, they're reactionary, and uh, overcoming that is going to be the task of our time, it seems to me. Anyway, David, thank you for your thoughts. We'll be right back